We are in 1 John chapter 2. We are on verse 18. John writes, Little children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. As things get darker and darker, we know it's the last hour. We know this is going to happen. Uh, this world leader is going to rise up, and the world is it's just not, it's not going to just like him, and it's not just going to love him. They're, they're going to end up worshiping him. And we know it's going to happen because the Bible says it is. And everything that the Bible says is going to happen, happens. Uh, we, as Christians who read the Bible, who study the word of God, know that whatever God says is going to happen, happens. It has in the past and it will in the future. We know it's going to happen. In Romans, Paul said, Romans 13, verse 11, he said, Do this knowing the time, that it is now high time to wake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. You know, how close are we to the end? Who knows? But we can see and believe that we're, that we're getting close. And we can certainly agree with Paul that now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed, for sure. Uh, the spirit of Antichrist is growing stronger and stronger. Antichrist means something promising salvation apart from Christ. Something opposite of Christ, something, a guarantee, a, a promise of peace, of security, uh, of trust, of salvation without Christ, which is Antichrist. And it looks good. You know, the spirit of Antichrist isn't some ugly thing with horns and a pitchfork. It, it's something that looks good, sounds good, feels good, and makes sense. But it is opposite Christ. It is something apart from Christ. It's not life. And there's never been a time in history when there are more paths offered to people apart from Christ than right today. You know, Paul is saying in here that it's time for the church to wake up and ask, you know, where are we? Where are we on, on the clock? If the Antichrist being revealed is high noon, you know, what time is it now? Where are we and, and what are we doing? The Antichrist goes by many titles. In Daniel, he's the little horn. He's the king of fierce countenance. He is the prince that shall come. He is the willful king. He is the one who comes in his own name in John 5.43. And in 2 Thessalonians, he is the son of perdition, the man of sin, and the lawless one. That's the Antichrist is seen in reality, who he really is. But the world is going to worship him. He is exactly what the world is looking for. Uh, the Antichrist will claim to be God and be worshipped, and it says in Thessalonians. Uh, in Revelation 13, it says he will blaspheme God. Uh, it also says he will display miraculous powers. He will come back to life. It says he will be wounded by the sword and come back to life, and the whole world will be in awe of that, and it will just add to the worship of him. Um, the Antichrist rules in full authority for three and a half years, it says in Revolution, Revelation 13. He was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and tongue. Uh, 
And also in Revelations chapter 13, it says the Antichrist will control the world's economy, uh, force all people, great and small, rich and poor, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their forehead so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or a number of his name. So there's going to be this mark. And just in case you're wondering, the COVID vaccine is not the mark of the beast. There's a whole bunch of people on YouTube that are saying that, that it's the mark of the beast. But it's interesting, though, uh, because in Israel, the government just came out with a statement saying we can't force people to take this vaccine, but we can, we can persuade them to by restricting them from doing things and going places if they don't have that proof of vaccine, um, which is what's going to happen when the mark really does come. The Antichrist in Matthew, Jesus said that he de desecrates God's temple. Jesus said, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place. So the Antichrist puts an image of himself right in the holy place in the temple and the world will worship. Uh, he will attempt, in Daniel it says, he will attempt the destruction of Israel. And he will cause, in Revelation, it says he will cause the earth's armies to fight against the Christ. But his final destiny is in the lake of fire. It says in Revelations, I saw the beast, the kings of the earth and their armies, gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet, who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the, lake of, into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. That'll be his end. It's temporary. His reign is temporary. The deception is temporary. Uh, the word of God is eternal. The scope of this deception that is coming, we can't even fathom it. Uh, but we can see the tracks leading up to it. Uh, during that time, believers are not just going to be mocked, and it's not that they're just going to be persecuted, they're going to be killed. And it, those who kill them will think they're doing God a favor. That's how intense the deception. The Bible says those who haven't received the love of the truth will believe the lie. We need to pray that we are anchored in the truth, anchored in reality. And that's kind of what I think the message is tonight, to be anchored in reality, to live in reality. In, Je um, in the Garden of Eden, Satan's words, did God really say the lie? That's going to be manifested totally when this man of sin is revealed. In Genesis also, God's words, let there be light. Those words were manifested when the word became flesh. John 1.4 says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. So, we know it's coming. The Bible says it's coming, and it's coming. We need to be anchored in the truth right now, because things are going to get darker. And we need to be living in what is reality. Verse 19. So, Many antichrists have gone out. It's in verse 19, it says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest, that none of them were of us. 
You know, he's not talking about people, Christians, who for whatever reason move from one church to another to attend. And he's not talking about a Christian who unfortunately and to their own loss falls out of fellowship. He's talking about unsaved people who were for some reason in the church but left and have turned away from the truth, the life, and the way. We have to be careful, though, that we don't fall away. You know, what's the lyrics of that song? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave, leave the God I love. You know, we have to guard our own hearts. Not that we're going to lose our salvation, but we can, be, we can drift away. We can be deceived if we're not anchored in the truth and anchored in reality. Not that we can lose our salvation. Our salvation has been secured by the work of someone other than ourselves. It's secure and it's eternal and we can rest in it. But we can drift to our loss. We can miss out on what God has for us. We can miss out on that abundant life that, has, that God has for us. We need to be grounded. In 1 Corinthians it says, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. You know, we just have to be aware, be warned. There's someone in the Bible who is kind of an example of this and kind of scares me a little bit because I know I'm capable of it, and that's Demas in the Bible. The first mention of Demas is in Philomon, and Paul writes, and he sends a greeting to Philomon, and he says, Ephraim, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, Archetrestus, whatever, Demas, Luke, my fellow laborers. Sorry. And Demas is included in here as a fellow laborer with Paul the Apostle. You know, what a position. What a place to be in. He, he's, he's following Paul. He's with him. He's laboring, working with Paul the Apostle. Then in Colossians, he ends the letter in Colossians by giving greetings from all the friends, the people that he's with. And he says something about each one of them. He talks about their devotion. He talks about their uh, faithfulness, their service to God, their service to him. And he says something good and, and he adds something to each name. And he ends it with Luke. The, and he calls him the beloved physician. You know, Luke who has been with him. The beloved physician. And then he says, and Demas. He doesn't say anything about Demas. It's like, and Demas. It's like he's just kind of there. He's still with him, but... but you just get the impression that he's just kind of there. And lastly, we hear of Demas in 2 Timothy. He says, be diligent to come to me quickly, for Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. So Demas goes from being a fellow laborer with Paul to drifting away, having loved this world, this present world. And, and it brings us back to verse 15 in 1 John chapter 2, which we talked about last week, but I think it's still part of this message about being anchored in the truth and just to heed what God says, to heed the warnings. Verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. And, and we spoke about this verse last time. The world being any individual institution or any aspect of culture that says the Bible isn't true. 
anything that is repeating the lie. Uh, those who directly or indirectly repeat the lie, did God really say? That's the world. And we're not talking about people. It's not people that we're against. It's not us versus them. It's a spiritual battle. It's a spiritual agenda of the enemy that this world to destroy. In Ephesians it says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And I think we have to really consider that. that we're not talking about people when it says do not love the world. Uh, we're to love people. We're to lay our lives down for people. It's a spiritual battle. You know, obviously we're not to be sucked into the spiritual deception that is in this world, that is overtaking the world. You know, the insanity that we're experiencing now and is just going to grow it is so prevalent that, you know, you hear, if you go on YouTube or someplace and you see prophecy updates and you just hear thing after thing after thing after thing of what's wrong and how things are going down the tubes, it, it would be impossible to make a complete list of everything that is happening today, the insanity. There's just so much going on causing this world to drift away from the, the truth. Um, but we're not to love the temporary things of the world. You know, do not love the world, the spiritual deception. Do not be deceived and don't fall in love with the things of this world, the temporary things. Not to make idols of the things that God has blessed us with, the things that we're thankful for and the things that we enjoy, that they don't become idols because they're temporary. Jesus even said in Luke, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Now, obviously, taking the whole word of God, we're to love our families. We're to love our wives, and wives are to love their husbands, and we're, love, and we're to love our children and those around us. But in Matthew 22, someone came up to Jesus and said, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. With that word all being underlined. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You know, putting anything or anybody above the love of God is idolatry. It's not that God needs the attention. He doesn't need to be, he doesn't need to be, he doesn't need to be glorified. He doesn't need to have everybody look to him. He just wants us to live. He wants us to have that abundant life that Jesus came to give us. And, and that comes from putting God first. Not even putting him first, putting him only. You know, and, and as Christians, we have our lives and we have all these things in our lives. We have church, God, family, friends, work, hobbies, things we like, and we kind of number them you know, in order of importance. And of course, we put God number one, and then something else number two, and then we go down the line. But actually, it should be just God. It should be just God. If God isn't our all in all, there will be no true appreciation for anything that he has given us. And, and there won't be any true love for anyone else. We won't be able to love other people unless God is only in our lives. 
Do not love the world or the things in the world. Love the eternal that we may obey God today in the temporary. Love the eternal. What is real? What is reality? Excuse me. And that is the message. Live in reality. Find your life in the eternal, not in the temporary. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So the question is, what is reality? There used to be a bumper sticker that a lot of people had. What is reality? It's the eternal things. It's not, it's not the temporary things. The things that we see and experience in our lives here on earth are real. They're real. But they're not reality. If there is such a thing, the temporary is not reality. If there is such a thing as the eternal, then what is temporary cannot be reality because it doesn't last. John 17, Jesus said, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. Israel was told to come out from among them and be separate, and they didn't. They kept falling into being sucked into the vacuum of the culture that was around them, falling into idolatry, falling in love with this world. And they kept drifting away, and God would bring them back, and they drift away. Turn to, for a moment, Nehemiah, please. Nehemiah 9, 25. In Nehemiah 9.25, the Levites stood up before the people and gave a history lesson about how God delivered the Jewish people out of Egypt and sustained them through the wilderness, brought them into the promised land. And in verse 25, it says, And they took strong cities and a rich land and possessed houses full of all goods cisterns already dug, vineyards, olive groves, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and grew fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. So God was faithful to bring them into land to fulfill the promises. Verse 26, it says, Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you, cast your law behind their backs and killed your prophets who testified against them to turn them to yourself. And they worked great provocations. All the judgments of God that we read about in the Bible on rebellious Israel was always to bring them back. To bring them back to him. And whatever it took, he did to bring them back. The Bible says that the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. That's a great gift, a great verse to think about. The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. For those born again, for us, for children of God, any adverse circumstances that come into our lives are meant to either bring us closer than we are at present or to bring us back if we stray. Verse 27 says, Therefore you delivered them into the hand of their enemies who oppressed them. And in the time of their trouble, when they cried to you, you heard from heaven. And according to your abundant mercies, you gave them deliverers who saved them from the hand of their enemies. In the Old Testament, God delivered them into the hand of their enemies for a purpose, to bring them back. And he does so also in the New Testament. Paul, 
there was a man in the Corinthian church who was unrepentant. He was involved in sexual sin and practiced it and was totally unrepentant. And Paul said, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. God will do whatever it takes to bring us back. Verse 28, but after they had rest, they again did evil before you. Therefore you left them in the hand of their enemies, so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they returned and cried out to you, you heard from heaven. And many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And that's the history of Israel, falling away, being brought back, falling away and being brought back. Again, the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Uh, and everyone here has received that gift and has heard that calling, and it's irrevocable. And yet the consequences of sin, as we look at the history of Israel, the consequences of sin should literally horrify us. Galatians, Paul says, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Anyone who is deceived into thinking that the grace of God gives us freedom to sin is either not saved or is spiritually suicidal. You know, the consequences of sin, as we see it in the Bible and as we see it in the world around us, in people's lives, should horrify us. The Lord was always bringing them back. And that's the way it is with us. He's always bringing us back. You know, it's, do you ever have a day like this? You, you, you know, I wake up in the morning and I fall out of bed and, you know, drag myself up and I fall downstairs and I go down to the kitchen and I mix my medication for the day, which is dark roast, black. And then I start to be able to think and I get into the word and, you know, I've got time before I have to go to work and I get into the word and prayer and it's like a mountaintop experience. You know, the Lord, it, it, the Lord just blesses you in, in the word. It's like you're in his presence, and it's like when they were on the hill mountain of transfiguration, and Peter said, Lord, it's good for us to be here. And so, you know, I'm reading the word, and it's just glorious. And I think, oh, man, I just, I just want to stay here. I don't want to leave, but I have to go to work. So I leave for the house for work, and I'm still, you know, kind of like, for lack of a better word, glowing. You know, I'm praying. Uh, I'm, you know, want, praying, Lord, use me today. And go to work, you know, and I'm just praising the Lord and worshiping him. And then as the day goes on, it, it kind of drains out a little bit. And by afternoon, I, I'm not praying as much. I'm just kind of, oh, when's this over with? I want to go home. And so by the time I get home, <clears throat> I just feel spiritually drained. And so I think, you know, I, I just feel drained. You know, what can I do? I know. I'll watch television. And then when I've sufficiently quenched the spirit, I drag myself to bed, and I wake up the next morning, and I pray, Lord, bring me back. Lord, please bring me back to you. And he does. Every single morning. Every single morning. Um, we pick up things to the day, and we pray, Lord, bring me back to you, and he always does. Verse 29 and testified against them that you might bring them back to your law. 
Yet they acted proudly and did not heed your commandments, but sinned against your judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. And they shrugged their shoulders, stiffened their necks, and would not hear, which if a man does, he shall live by them. And that goes for every person on earth, whether they're a believer or not. Uh, to the degree that a person obeys God for whatever reason, either by conscience sake or they just don't want to get in trouble, however, to whatever degree a person obeys God, they reap the benefits of it. Uh, but the benefits are temporal. The benefits are in the temporal during our time that we have on earth. Obedience to the law does not give us eternal life unless we are obeying the greatest commandment. Jesus said to the people, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Romans, Paul said, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does these things shall live by them. That, that's the law. To whatever degree a person does what God says, they will reap the benefits of it. But the righteousness of faith that gives eternal life says something different. Faith by which we are saved says, it's not what I do, and it's not what I haven't done, and it doesn't have anything to do with my devotion or lack of devotion. It's what Christ has done. That is reality. That is eternal. That's what's real. Verse 30 says, yet for many years you had patience with them and testified against them by your spirit and your prophets, yet they would not listen. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the people of the lands. You know, how long the patience of God is higher than the heavens? You know, how long will God be patient with a believer before he says, that's it, I quit, and that person is rejected? The answer is never. Uh, how long will God be patient with us as long as we're on earth and then we'll be redeemed? God's patience is higher than the heavens. That is reality. That is reality. Whenever we feel condemned and we think God's done with me, how can God love me, and all the rest of the whispers of the enemy, that's not reality. Verse 31, Nevertheless, in your great mercy, you did not utterly consume them or forsake them, for you are God, gracious and merciful. In Hebrews, Paul says, Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's reality. You know, do we believe it? We, we read it and we know it, but do we believe it? When, during those times when we may feel that we deserve to be forsaken, do we believe what Jesus said? Or when circumstances cause us to feel that God is far away, do we believe that he has said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. It, it's dependent on him, not on us. Job said, look, I go forward, but he is not there. And backward, but I cannot perceive him. When he works on the left hand, I cannot behold him. When he turns to the right hand, I cannot see him. But he knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you. That is reality. 
Verse 32, now therefore our God, the great and mighty and awesome God, who keeps covenant and mercy, do not let all the trouble seem small before you that has come upon us, our kings and our princes, our priests and our prophets, our fathers, and on all your people from the days of the kings of Assyria until this day, who keeps covenant and mercy. God is faithful in the covenants that he makes with his creation. He is faithful. The covenant with Israel that he made, the, the covenant with Moses and the Hebrew children, that covenant was, you do this, and I will do this. If you do this, I will do this. And if you don't do that, if you don't do this, then I will do this. So it was two parties involved in that covenant. And he was faithful to his word. And its word, it, it, he was faithful to his word with the purpose of keeping them alive for his purpose, which, which was to establish the new covenant. That through the nation of Israel, the Messiah would come, who would say, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. The new covenant with his entire creation is not, if you do this, I will do this. It's just, I will do this. Only believe. I will do it. And that covenant is reality. Verse 33, he says, However, you are just in all that has befallen us, for you have dealt faithfully, but we have done wickedly. Neither our kings, nor our princes, our priests, nor our fathers have kept your law, nor indeed your commandments and your testimonies, which you have testified against them. For they have not served you in their kingdom, or in many good things that you gave them or in the large and rich land which you set before them, nor did they turn from their wicked works. Romans, Paul said, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. <clears throat> the only absolute response to the gospel is obedience, worship and obedience, true worship and obedience. I heard uh, somebody on the radio talk about this verse, that in view of the mercies of God, present your bodies as living sacrifice. And he said, you know, present your bodies. You know, you look at the goodness of God, what he has done for us, his mercies, so prevent, present your bodies as living sacrifices. And, and he was talking about, we need to get out there and do the work. The Great Commission. That these, day, these days that are getting darker and darker, this world needs to hear the gospel. And we need to be out there, and we need to be working, and we need to be serving, and we need to be sharing with people the good news. And he is absolutely right. Absolutely true. And I pray that that becomes reality in my life. But I would suggest that the first thing that should happen in view of the mercies of God, when we see the goodness of God, when we see and understand and realize the price that he paid, our first reaction should be, as John did in Revelations, we should fall down like dead men. And then the Lord lifts us up, and then to live is Christ. Verse 36, he says, Here we are, servants today, and the land that you gave to our fathers to eat its fruit and its bounty, here we are, servants in it. Uh, they missed out. They lost. They suffered loss because they fell in love with this world. They were consumed by the culture that was around them. We tell the kids in Sunday school, we told them this morning, don't miss out on what God has for you. Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and that more abundantly. 
Israel, <clears throat> excuse me, missed out. They got sucked into the culture and left the world, word, word of God. Verse 37, and it yields much increase to the kings you have set over us because of our sins. Also, they have dominion over our bodies and our cattle at their pleasure, and we are in great distress. And because of this, we make a sure covenant and write it. Our leaders, our Levites, and our priests seal it. The Lord is always bringing us back. So the message is, do not love this world. Live in reality. And again, the question is, what is reality? And, and to find that out, I believe, you have to go back to Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 25. It says, and they took strong cities and a rich land and possessed houses full of goods, cisterns already dug, vineyards, olive groves, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and grew fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Everything in the Old Testament happened historically as it's written, but everything in the Old Testament also speaks of Christ. We have been given a land just as they were. The land of the living, the Bible calls it. And we haven't had to do anything to get it. It's like we're like the Israelites, moving in and everything was all ready for us. We haven't done anything. We're saved by grace and not by works. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. It says, they ate and were filled and grew fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. That, this is reality. This is where we are to live, delighting ourselves in the great goodness of God. Jesus said, let your light shine before men. You know, to the Ephesian church, and in Revelations, Jesus said to them, you've left your first love. You have stopped delighting yourselves in my great goodness towards you. You're doing a lot of stuff. You've got a lot of church stuff going, but remember for the height from which you've fallen. And if you don't repent and return to your first love, the light's going to go out. God desires us to live in the land and delight ourselves in his great goodness. And if we're not living in that reality, and that is reality, then no matter what church-related activity we engage in, the light goes out. The things that are going on around us that we see, uh, the path that our institutions and, and our culture is taking, uh, the potential loss of freedom in this country that we can see coming, the lawlessness, the spirit of Antichrist growing, ever, ever more. All this is happening, and it's all real, but it's not reality. It's temporary. And we are to live in reality. The book of Esther, you know, you read that, and circumstances couldn't have been more dire than for Esther and Mordecai and the Jews during that time. You know, we think we've got it bad. Esther and the Jews, they have a king and a governor who have no regard for human life, and they make it a law that can't be reversed that calls for the extermination of God's people. Not just the persecution of God's people, 
but exterminate them, kill every single one of them. And they made a law that that was to be done and it couldn't be reversed. And there was a populace living in the whole area of the world at that time who was more than willing to do it, to join in with it. And Esther, she didn't know if she was gonna end the day with her head still attached. And it was up to her to go into the king and plead for her people. You couldn't get worse circumstances than that. Uh, these circumstances were real. They were happening. The people were scared, and rightly so. But they weren't reality. From our view today, looking at the account, and we can see the beginning and the end, did God's people really have anything to worry about? Was, was everything under control? It was. Do not love the world. You know, the question, how much has the world infected the church? How much has the world infected me? You know, the deception, the spirit of Antichrist is so insidious, I don't even know. I don't even know. Uh, turn for a moment to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8, Paul is correcting the church for their carnality, for their love of the world. I mean, if there was ever a church that the world had infected, it's the church at Corinth. And he says to them, you are already full. You are already rich. You have reigned as kings without us. And indeed, I wish, could wish you did reign, that we might also reign with you. For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last, as men condemned to death. For we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. To the present hour, we both hunger and thirst and we are pearly clothed and beaten and homeless. And we labor working with our own hands. Being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we endure. Being defamed, we entreat. We have been made as the filth of the world, the offscoring of all things until now. I do not write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, I warn you. Those words convict me. You know, we are fools for Christ. But no, you're wise in Christ. You know, how do we escape the infection of the world and our carnality and our love for the world? By living in reality. You know, I, I think we're all the same. You know, we are being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. We're being set apart. We're saved. Our salvation is secure. And, but, and we're being sanctified. But... There isn't a verse in the Bible that I don't fall short of, to some degree. There isn't a verse, there isn't a sin that I am not guilty of, to some degree. And yet, uh, so what is reality then? Is it the depth of our sin, or is it the height of his love? What is reality? The depth of, our, the depth of my sin is real, <clears throat> excuse me, is real, but the height of his love is reality. And we are to live in reality. 
We can't live in the condemnation of sin because the Bible says he has condemned sin in the flesh. It also says there is no condemnation to those in Christ. You can't live in condemnation. You can only die in it. And God desires us to live, to live in the land. We live in the height of his love. And when the Spirit brings us to that place where we're living in the land and we're rejoicing in his goodness, delighting in his goodness, then comes love, joy, and peace. And we're a light to the world. John 15.9, Jesus said, As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. He said, if you keep my commandments, which we truly desire to do, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. In these days that we live in right now, the night is far spent, as Paul said. But it's going to get even darker before the day dawns. And the most needful thing for the church today, for us today, is to abide in his love, to live in his love to be a light to this world, to live in the reality of the eternal. Then we will be that city on a hill that cannot be hidden, as Jesus said. So, let's pray. Father, we come before you, and we thank you, Lord. We thank you for your faithfulness. Uh, Lord, if it was up to us, I know if it was up to my faithfulness and my devotion to you, there would be no hope. But Lord, in you is everything. In Christ alone. Bring us to that place, Lord, where it is Christ alone. That we are delighting in your goodness. And people would see it. We pray for your grace, Lord. And we thank you for your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.